If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, you might want to turn to the Old Testament book of Haggai, chapter 2. Again, those with electronic devices are really happy they don't have to try to find the Old Testament book of Haggai. Very tiny little book toward the end of the Old Testament. We'll be in chapter 2 and we'll be reading from verse 10 on here in just a few moments. When he was alive, my grandfather never tired of telling the story of sending me down to the beach to retrieve the oars to our rowboat. He said I came back two hours later. Whether or not I had the oars, I don't really remember. It seems I got distracted and forgot my mission. Today we're wrapping up a four-week series in the book of Haggai, and we should remember that it too is directed to a people who have, like me, heading down to pick up the oars, forgotten their mission. It's only been about two decades since 50,000 of the Jewish people were returned to Jerusalem with the imperative to rebuild the temple of their God. When they first got to Jerusalem, they were enthusiastic and and they began to build right away. But quickly opposition arose to their effort and the legality of the project was challenged and the people in the region weren't happy to see the Israelites come back and they encountered all sorts of troubles which eventually caused them to stop work on the temple. When they stopped work on the temple, uh, they began working more on their own homes and they began establishing their own livelihoods. But no matter how hard they worked and what they were doing, they never had enough, and they were never quite content. Haggai used a pretty graphic image to describe their condition. It's something that probably you can relate to. If not right now, then probably at some point in your life, you know what it means to have too much week left over at the end of the money. And he says in chapter 1, verse 6, that the one who earns wages does so only to put them in a purse full of holes. You know what that's like. You just can't catch up no matter what you do. You're, you can't get any traction. You feel like you're falling behind a lot. You never have enough. Well, that's what's happening to the Israelites here. And what's happening here is actually a fulfillment of something that God told them through the prophet Moses would happen to them if they weren't careful. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30, Moses is laying out God's words. And he tells the Israelites, there really are two ways for you to live. One, you can follow God's covenant. You can live as the saved people of God. You can do things the way that God says they ought to be done. And when you do that, God promises you will have the blessing. Or, this other way, you can abandon the covenant. You can live your life the way that you want to. You can act as though you are the sovereign over your own life and subsequently the blessing will be withheld. So there are really two ways to live. That's what was laid out for the Israelites. In a way, that's kind of the choice that's before us, isn't it? We can either follow God or, or not follow God, and we will reap the consequences of both of those things. Well, once again, Israel has chosen not to follow the Lord. They've chosen to abandon the covenant. And so that's what condition they're in. There is no blessing in the land. 
Maybe today you don't feel very blessed. Maybe you're here today and you feel less than blessed. You've been working very hard in some arena, but your work is not being rewarded or it's not being recognized. You're doing all that you can, and it seems to be one of those situations where the harder you work, the behinder you get. Uh, and you're feeling frustrated, or life for you has become quite futile. You should know from this scripture in Haggai that sometimes God uses these painful and tough experiences to get our attention. Sometimes God causes us to be frustrated and, and he causes the futility that we're experiencing in order that we might turn to him, assess our situation. Are we following his will? Are we walking in his ways? Do we have the blessing? That's what God's doing here to the people of Israel. But all the struggle that they were having was not enough to get them to turn around and turn to him. So he sends them his prophet Haggai. Uh, we don't know a lot about Haggai. Haggai, Haggai just sort of wanders in from the hinterlands. He talks for a couple of months and he wanders away. And that's pretty much all we get uh, from him in the, in the Old Testament. But Haggai came with an important message for the people of God. And we've gone over this over the last several weeks. He begins with something like this. Consider your ways. Or I think the NIV says give careful thought. God is challenging his people think this through. Now, why does he have to tell them to consider their ways or to give careful thought or to think it through? It's pretty much because, and that's the implication, their ways are not working out. What they're doing isn't working. So that's a good axiom to live by. If what you're doing isn't working, maybe you should stop doing it. Maybe you should try doing something differently. So we begin here, consider your ways. And then through Haggai, God says, get to work. Get to work. Reclaim your mission, the thing that you forgot about, the thing that you abandoned. Get back at that. Build my house. Live as my people. And thirdly, God says to them, be strong. So we, we see be strong in other places in the Bible. Remember Joshua. He's filling Moses' shoes. Those are big shoes to fill. must have been a pretty intimidating task. God tells him, be strong and courageous. Here God is telling a bunch of people who don't feel very strong, who don't feel very empowered, who are coming back to a desecrated, desolate kind of land. Be strong. Well, how can you be strong when you feel like this? Well, God tells us how. Don't be strong because you're strong. Be strong because I'm strong. Be strong because I'm with you. That's what he says. Be strong because I'm with you. And the fact that I'm with you then means you don't have to be afraid of anything. And you need not be discouraged. I am here in your midst. Now, most of the people responded to this message from Haggai the prophet. Most of them began to obey and to do what was right. And that's where we pick up our text this morning. Chapter 2, verse 10, reading through the 19th verse. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? 
When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now, that may very well be one of those passages of Scripture that causes people to look at me and say, Scott, you see why I don't read the Old Testament? I mean, what on earth does any of that mean, and how does that have anything to do with me and how I live my life? Well, let's start with the easiest concept in this passage. That's the one that begins in verse 15 through 17. The people are on the threshold of a new beginning. They have, they're on the cusp of, of a revived relationship with God. And in short, they're rediscovering their mission. They're getting back on track. They are readying themselves to get God's work done, to rebuild that temple. And they hear these words, which would be both words of encouragement and and at the same time, a bit of a warning. I think the paraphrase would go something like this. As you begin this new life of following God, remember the futility of the old one. Remember the frustration of the old ways. Remember and don't forget how you struggled in life when you were living apart from the divine blessing. Now, the Bible says in rather graphic way that I'm not going to go into this morning that a fool uh, returns to his folly. And what God is really saying here, so that's our penchant to go back to things that are hurtful and harmful and wrong. But what God is saying here is don't be foolish. Remember the frustration that you felt when you were eking out an existence apart from me and without my blessing. And don't go back there. The odds are pretty good in a congregation of our size that a lot of us have gone to places we don't wish to return to. We have been at times the wandering sheep that Isaiah talks about. We know what it is to be the prodigal son of Luke 15. We have had our share of struggles. Some of those struggles, if we're honest, have been self-induced. We have caused our own pain and our own problems. And prayerfully, we've learned from our bad choices. We've learned from the trouble that it has caused us, the pain that it has caused others, the disappointments. Prayerfully, we have learned not to make those same choices again. And so we get this to a degree that God is saying to his people, use the painful experiences of the past as inspiration for pressing on in the present. Use those painful experiences of the past as inspiration for pressing on in the present. Now, the second part of the passage, that's the tough stuff. That's the harder stuff because it has its roots in something you're probably not familiar with, and that would be the Levitical law. Nobody that I know of is a student of the Levitical law, and Leviticus happens to be one of those books in the Bible that intimidates a lot and is hard to grasp its meaning. It is a very meaningful book. Perhaps someday we'll go through it. Don't be scared. Um, But for now, Leviticus does tend to be that book, don't you think, in your Old Testament reading plan that when you see it coming up, you're like, oh, no. 
And you may read it, or you may skip it, or you may read it in a cursory way, just so that you can check the little box that says you're a good student and you did what you were supposed to do, but you're hardly ever reading it to grasp what's going on. And that's part of our problem with grasping here what's going on in Haggai chapter 2. As a 21st century American, we're not going to pick up what is being laid down here by the prophet. So let me simplify this issue for you. The purpose of this mini parable that Haggai tells about carrying consecrated meat in a garment, in the fold of a garment, and, uh, and touching a, a dead body and what happens after that, is used to illustrate a simpler principle, and that's this, that unholiness contaminates. Unholiness spreads in a way that holiness does not. A holy object doesn't transmit holiness the way a defiled object transmits defilement. And that's the bottom line. So whether we can appreciate the Levitical law or not, we can know this fact about the people, which Haggai is pointing out. We don't want to miss this. The people are defiled. They are unclean. Therefore, everything they do, everything they touch, all that they offer, even their attempts at religious ritual, is unclean. And that's the point, okay? And that's the predicament. So let's not miss that. The people are defiled. Which brings us to a question that we might have asked early on in this series, like around that first chapter. It brings us to the importance of the temple and the question to ask what's so important about a temple? These people have been sent home to rebuild the temple. Why? Why is it important? Why is there urgency? They've been some 50 years in Babylon without it. Why do they have to do it right now? What does God want? To find that answer, we have to ask a few more questions. What's the purpose of a temple? Or what happens in a temple? Or what does a temple signify? Or what does a temple mean? Well, the temple is a place of God's glory. The temple is a place where the name of God dwells. The temple is the place where God meets with man. The temple says God is among his people. Now this is an important aspect of the nature of God that I pray we all grasp well. Um, because we do sometimes create an image of God in our minds based on what we think or what we experience. And yet, the only way to truly know God is to come to his word and accept how he reveals himself. And throughout scripture, God reveals himself to be a God who wants to dwell with his people. This is an important uh, concept for us to grasp. God wants, desires to be with his people. Creation. Or another way to say that is that God wants to be in a relationship with you. That, that God wants to be in a relationship with you. And, and he, wa he wants to be with his creation, not because he's lonely, okay? He's not up in heaven going, I am bored. He's not like, listen, Son, Holy Spirit, you're good people, but I need to get out. There's none of that going on. Okay, God isn't lonely. God is completely self-sufficient. So why on earth would he want to spend time with his creation? Because he loves his creation. Because he loves you. You see, the God of the universe loves you. The God of the universe is mindful of you. The God of the universe thinks about you. The God of the universe wants to live in relationship with you. This is a truth that you can trace throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, 
Okay? When this whole thing winds down and there's a new heaven and there's a new earth, the crowning glory of that is that the dwelling place of God will be with man. See, God loves you and he wants to be with you. He desires to be with his creation. So one reason the rebuilding of a temple is so important is because it, it signifies that God is among his people. That was an important thing for the people of Israel to understand, having been in exile and returning, that God is with you. It was also an important thing for the surrounding nations to know, uh-oh, Israel's back and their God's with them. It's an important thing to know, but there's more than that. The temple is also a place of sacrifice. The, the temple is a prescribed location, the location God prescribes for dealing with sin. It's the place where sin is acknowledged. It's, it's the place where sin, uh, sin's deadly consequences are taken care of through atonement, through offerings, through sacrifices, okay? So God wants to dwell with his people, but how can an unholy people stand in the presence of a holy God? By acknowledging their debt of sin, by confessing their transgressions against God, by seeking forgiveness, offering atonement. Atonement is made through the sacrificial system that God had ordained, but it had been derailed by the Babylonian captivity. The temple had been destroyed. The sacrifices weren't going on. So you see why these people are defiled, okay? They are unclean. They have not dealt with or been cleansed of the guilt of their sin. And so we see that the predicament of the returning exiles is actually the universal predicament of all humanity in our natural state, defiled, and with no mechanism, no means in ourselves by which to be cleansed. Now, before we go any further in this, I'd like you to notice who took the initiative to solve the people's problems. In the book of Haggai, who takes the initiative to solve the people's problem? It is God. It is God who reaches out to a defiled people, right? The people weren't coming to him, so he went to them. It was God who came on the scene with divine utterance, breaking through the frustration, breaking through the futility, with instruction, with wisdom, with correction, with an eye to turning these people around. But this is what is important to know. God came. God initiated. And all the other religions in the world, you've got people that are scampering after a deity, trying to appease a deity, going on pilgrimages to, to make a deity happy. And here we are, in our natural state, not making our God happy, but he comes anyway. You're grasping that? God comes. God initiates. So if I was going to put this... Uh, well, no, there's one other thing I think we, we need to make sure that we understand too. Not only that God initiates, but if we look at, follow the story closely, God actually stirred up the hearts of the people so that they could understand him. God actually stirred up the hearts of the people so that they could obey him and do it. Do what he wanted them to do. He came to soften hearts. He came to open eyes and ears so that truth could be perceived. Do you understand that if God didn't do that for us, we would never know him? We would never fear him. If God did not graciously open us up to who he is, we'd never find him on our own. That's, that's what I think, in part, what John Newton was talking about when he penned one of the lyrics, one of the verses of Amazing Grace. 
'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. That it was the grace of God coming in to open up eyes that says, this is your wretched condition. To which then, of course, when it's revealed to us, we all go, oh my goodness, that's horrible. There's no hope. And then, of course, we have hope given to us by God. And we sing the rest of that verse, and grace my fears relieved. That's what that's all about. God graciously revealing himself. Without God stirring us, we'd never know him, and we'd never fear him. Now, if we can put this in New Testament language. I know you're more familiar with New Testament language. The people are dead in their trespasses. And God has intervened to make a way to be with them and a way to help them deal with their problem of sin, ultimately to bless this undeserving people. Now, if that's starting to sound a little bit familiar, a pattern maybe in the Bible that's starting to sound a little bit familiar, it absolutely should. Because even if you're not, even if, if intellectually you're like, no, I'm still stuck in Haggai and I can't get over the fold and the meat and the dead body. <laughs> even if intellectually you're, you're maybe not just tracking all the way through this, intuitively, I think you're probably picking up on a theme here. And it is simply this, that what God is doing through Haggai the prophet for his people is a preview of what he's ultimately going to do for his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Haggai has the gospel. Haggai points us to Jesus. The Bible tells us in the fullness of time, that when the time was exactly right, God sent forth his son. The scripture says that he came while we were yet sinners, not deserving of his presence, not earning his presence, in no way meriting his presence. But he came to dwell with us, to dwell with humanity, to live among us, and to make a way for us to be cleansed from our sin. You see, Jesus didn't come, beloved, to rebuild the temple. Jesus came to be a temple. John records of him, second chapter of John's gospel. Jesus is talking to the Jews, and he says, destroy this temple. You know the story, right? And in three days, I will raise it up again. And the Jews are like, yeah, it's taken us 46 years to build this thing. You're going to raise it up in three days. And John gives us the insight. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus would become the place where God and humanity meet. And he, as he shouldered our sins uh, to Calvary and died the death that we deserve on the cross, he became the very place where sin is dealt with. He became that place. By offering his sinless body as a sacrifice, he became the place where sin is atoned. Where the unclean who believe are made clean. The place where the crimson stains of sin are washed white as snow. Jesus was killed on the cross. Jesus was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again. Having satisfied the demands of sin and the wrath of God, he burst forth in eternal life, holding in his hand the pledge of the same for any and all who would believe in him and receive him by faith. You see, Jesus is where defiled people find the blessing of God. Jesus 
gives the blessing, the gift of eternal life. And Haggai points us to Jesus. Haggai points us to the gospel. So let me close with just a couple implications from our text this morning. The first is the implication of invitation. You see, the returned exiles may have been home in Jerusalem, but they were still in some ways spiritually exiled from God, separated from God. They were far from him. And you might be at home too in this world. You might think this is all there is and this is fine. But you are spiritually exiled from God, separated from the Lord. A lot of people are in that condition. So we read from Haggai that God took the initiative to come to those people, to speak to them, to instruct them with the promise of blessing them. And as we have just seen, this played out on a much larger, grander scale in the person of Jesus. And I'm saying that God is revealing to you who Jesus is and what Jesus will do and is providing you with an invitation to no longer be a spiritual exile but to get about busying yourself with the work of the kingdom, which ultimately, beloved, you were created for. This is what you are supposed to do, and this is where you will find the greatest fulfillment. So Jesus offered to many people, and certainly the majority of people didn't take him up on it. But if you're here today, wherever you are, physically or spiritually, if you're viewing us online, if you're listening to a podcast, and today is the day, that you finally understand what Jesus is about or you sense God knocking on the door of your heart. This is an invitation, okay, to, to come along, to do as Jesus said, come and follow me. Repent and believe the gospel. The second, the second uh, implication, I think, is a bit of inspiration. This text provides us some inspiration for, for believers it helps us to understand what we are saved from, but also what we are saved for. At times we have a way of romanticizing the past, and we have been saved from that sinful past, but sometimes we romanticize it. We forget how bad it really was living without God or apart from God's blessing. It's easiest to do this when we are dissatisfied with our current circumstances, when we're experiencing some sort of hardship or persecution, when our faith is actually costing us something, and when, and when, when our expectations, whether they were realistic or not, are, are not being met. I mean, one of the unrealistic expectations we frequently have is that once I become a disciple of Jesus, my life is going to be smooth. And no matter what the Bible says or how many times we read that and we read Jesus' promises that you're going to have persecution and hardship, we still have it somewhere stuck because of our flawed radar or something. This idea that, well, I, must, I did the right thing, so I'm going to get a great result. You know, I'm doing good, so good is coming to me. And then when good doesn't come to us, we get shattered, we get upset, we don't, know how, we don't have a category for suffering as we ought. And sometimes people in those circumstances say, well, you know what? This costs too much. I'm not doing this. The heck with this. I tried it. You know, like a, I tried it. It just didn't work for me. And Haggai is really saying, no, remember what you were saved from. Don't forget what you were saved from. Because that's not a good life, a life apart from the divine blessing. Don't go back there. The Bible says that no man having put his hand to the plow and turning back is fit for the kingdom of God. The scripture inspires us to persevere and persevere no matter how hard it gets, no matter how big the struggle. If you want a category for suffering, beloved, share in the sufferings of Christ. 
That's what the Bible tells us that we're supposed to be doing and that we can expect to do. That when it's hard, we know that it was hard for Jesus too. But when it's hard, it's not time to quit. Persevere and hang in there. This, don't, so don't forget what you've been saved from. Don't go back to that folly. But also don't, don't forget that you're saved for something. We have this also tendency not only to romanticize or minimize the, the struggles of the past. Some of us have a tendency to be distracted. I cannot speak for you, but I can speak for me. And I can say that that little two-hour foray to get the oars was not the first nor the last time that I have ever been waylaid by distraction. And sometimes those distractions are innocent enough. If you're a 10-year-old boy, there are frogs to be caught and, you know, water to be waded in. And there's just so many things to do. But sometimes those distractions are of a more serious nature. Scripture tells us about the cares of life, how easy it is to get wrapped up in the cares of life. And then they actually choke out what semblance of faith we may have had. And then I've already spoken to the idea of persecution. Persecution is another one of those distractions. That's what caused the people to set down their tools on the temple site. They just, they were, they were up against it, and so they quit, and they said, well, I'm just going to focus on me for a while, which, of course, is all the advice you're ever going to get in this world. Just focus on you. And God is saying, no, don't focus on you. God is saying, focus on me. I'm the one who made you, and I'm the one where you're going to find contentment and happiness. So Haggai encourages us to remember that God has work for his people to do, and that we were made for that work and saved for that work, to do those things with our lives that will please him and give him glory. And, of course, obviously a question there is, are we involved in that work? Are you doing your part in building the kingdom of God? And finally, I think the last implication of this text is just simply that it is a cause for celebration. And here's the, here's the thing to revel in. Here's the thing to, you know, let warm your heart as you, as you leave. God is willing. This text teaches us God is willing to bless a defiled people. I mean, in other words, I mean, there is hope because God is willing to bless a defiled people. And that is what, what humanity in its natural state is. That's what we are, sinful and unable to cleanse ourselves, stained by sin. But because of Jesus, Christian, because of Jesus who willingly gave himself in our place, whose blood washes away all of our guilt, you are no longer unclean. You are clean. You are acceptable to God. And you are beneficiaries of blessings that will never end.